is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Voter registration is expected to surge today, not just because an election is around the corner, but because it's National Voter Registration Day. Back in 2016, it seemed to make a real difference. That year, we saw a threefold increase in activity on that day. So there were 13,306 transactions. That is State Election Director Judd Choate. This year, with a midterm, he thinks there'll be a surge of between 10 and 12,000 registrations across Colorado. One area the state is focused on today is high schools. That's partly at the urging of 17-year-old Michael Enkner. He's a senior at Denver East High School. Hi, Michael. Hey. You have to be 18 to vote, so I'm really curious if you'll be old enough to vote by election day. Uh, I won't be by the election for uh, governor or midterms this year, but I will by the uh, 2020 election. Okay. Are you a little disappointed that you can't? Yeah, I wish Uh I was able to participate. This is the first time in uh, quite a long time that the governor has been up for re-election in Colorado. That is to say the incumbent is on his way out. So the the seat is totally open. Okay. You're behind the state's first ever high school and college student voter registration week. Uh, You're announcing this proclamation today. It got the governor's stamp of approval, the one who's leaving office. What gave you the idea to do this? Well, I originally got interested in uh, working with voter registration through my constitutional law team at my school. What's the constitutional law team? Constitutional law team is a program uh, under the We the People competition that uh, allows students to really understand their constitution better and learn more about not only their national government, but also their state governments. And it's pretty in-depth. Like we found tape from a, a previous competition. This is not you, but this is the kind of thing you'd hear. The 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates and the 1960s civil rights debates reflected the conflict of states' rights versus national power. So, Michael, that's where you cut your chops mm-hmm. on the Constitution. Do you run into kids who say, eh, my vote doesn't count? There definitely are students who are like that. And I think that it's a very difficult thing to hear because I feel in the United States and in other democracies, it's so um, important that we have the ability to decide the way our government goes and decide who represents us. Why do you think they express that? Partially because they feel like – their vote so insignificant compared to the uh, such a large number of people living in the United States. And while one vote may not count all that much in a uh, presidential election or national election, uh, a vote can make a very large difference in local elections, things like that. And of course, it occurs to me that if lots of people say my vote doesn't count, well, that ends up being a true story if enough yeah. of them say that, right? Uh, it occurs to me that many of your classmates like you are not 18 yet. So what is it you're encouraging them to do exactly? So in Colorado, if you're 16 or older, you are able to pre-register so that um, when you turn 18, it's much easier to actually uh, get your ballot and uh, vote for candidacy support. Pre-registration. This is actually something I didn't realize Colorado had. In 2013, the legislature here passed a bill that allows, as you say, 16-year-olds to do this pre-registration. The latest data from the Secretary of State's office show that more than 40,000 teens here are pre-registered. I guess that includes you. Yeah. So um, the easiest way to do it is uh, online or via text. You can text a number offered by Inspire Colorado and register in about five to 10 minutes. There's also a number of uh, organizations that do voter registration drives in high schools across Colorado. So if there is a drive planned at your school, then it takes five minutes to fill out a form there as well. What do you think would get young people to register? And I suppose even more important than the registration is actually to go out and vote. 
I think that it's important to have a standardized program um, across all of the school districts in Colorado because I think if students are given a even a day just in their civics classes, which are mandatory in most school districts already, uh, to go over voter registration and register kids there would really improve the uh, number of people who are pre-registered. So are you working to make that happen? I am trying to work with some legislators in Colorado to hopefully be able to do something like that in the future. Of course, Colorado is a local control state, so you have school boards that really decide their own fate, and you have to get everyone on board if you're going to do this. Yeah, it'll definitely be a lot of work, and I can't guarantee that something will go through, but I really do hope that it does work out. This is your civics project. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you. Michael Enkner is a senior at Denver East High School, and with the help of Governor Hickenlooper and Secretary of State Wayne Williams, he has proclaimed September 24th through 28th High School and College Student Voter Registration Week. Of course, registering is just the first step. Voting is the ultimate goal. Colorado's elections director tells us 91 percent of the people who signed up on this day in 2016 voted in that year's election. During election season, we generally hear a lot from candidates and campaigns. But this year, CPR wants to be sure we hear more from you, Coloradans of all stripes. So we've had teams of reporters and producers canvassing the state since midsummer, listening to people from Julesburg to Durango about what's really important to them. CPR editor Megan Verlee is helping lead this effort. She has a preview. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. This is really about getting to the heart of Colorado the diversity of communities and people in this state. What did reporters set out to hear? Well, really anything and everything, because, you know, we can sit in our editors meetings every day and try and figure out what matters to Coloradans coming up on the election. But that in no way is as good as actually going out and asking people. And one thing we wanted to do with this project was ask really open ended questions. So we weren't out there like, what do you think about health care policy? We were asking people what mattered to them, what they're concerned about. And we did hear about health care policy. But then we also heard about water and growth and, you know, the, the local tax increase on the ballot all kinds of stuff. And what are we learning in doing that? Well, we're learning a lot of things. Um, We sent teams uh, out on state arteries. This really was envisioned as a road trip. So 76 to the Nebraska line, U.S. 40 out towards Utah, U.S. 50 across southern Colorado, and then, you know, parts of the I-25 corridor where there are obviously a lot of people living. Um, And actually, as we speak, John Daly and our digital editor are on I-70 trucking across the mountains. I hope they aren't in too much traffic. Good luck to you. (laughs) Well, it is a Tuesday. They're probably (laughs) doing quite well. So one thing that our teams have heard about is how different Colorado's booming economy feels in different parts of the state. Mm. And what's interesting is that even while the the times are good numerically, there are anxieties everywhere about it, obviously, from the high cost of living on the front range to this feeling of being left behind in a lot of rural areas and this question of where do they fit in with Colorado as as the front range changes and sort of begins to really dominate uh, the identity. And And the question whether the gubernatorial candidates who are running are going to represent them. Um, And finally, we did ask people about the president and heard a lot of uh, interesting responses across the political spectrum. And all of that will be coming to your air soon. Yes, in the weeks to come. And that's what our reporters are hearing. What are they doing with that information, Megan? Well, as I just teased there, I'm going to be sending groups of them to your show uh, to talk about specific issues uh, that they heard about on the road. So you'll be hearing from folks talking about... um, um, what concerns they heard in rural Colorado, what they 
like I said, think of the president, what they think of the, the upcoming election. And we'll also have some individual stories about issues and concerns in specific places that people visited. Uh, spoiler alert, I know we're going to be hearing one of those uh, pretty much as soon as I finish talking here. Yes, that's right. Um, and finally, you don't just have to, this isn't just a radio project. We sent digital reporters, great photographers out with all of our radio reporters, and you can see the project uh, right now at our website. At CPR.org. Yes, how is Colorado doing? We went on a road trip to ask everyone about it. That's the headline. Looks like you're looking at it there on your screen. If you click on that link, you will find a literal map of the state. And as you scroll down, uh, you get to see these photos of the communities we visited, the people we met. And if you uh, click into those communities, you you get a taste of what we heard out there on the road. Uh, We're really aiming to provide a very rich portrait of a lot of parts of our state. And we're just going to keep adding it to it in the weeks to come. So uh, there's going to be a lot of in-depth in-depth features, analysis, and a lot of really great uh, photographic work there at CPR.org. Well, this seems like just one more opportunity to get in a shameless plug for Purplish, which is our election year podcast, which you are editing as well. I I do have my fingers in a lot of things. Yes, yes, you do. (laughs) Megan Verley, uh, who is an editor here at CPR. And as you mentioned, we have a story from this road trip project right now. CPR's Grace Hood takes us to Julesburg, a rural community struggling to hold on to its residents. And a lot hinges on the November election. Out on the plains, it's flat corn pasture as far as the eye can see to Nebraska. When you finally approach Julesburg, one of the first signs you see advertises land for sale. It's the only place I know of that you can buy the ground from the town, and, and we are actually the real estate agent. Alan Coyne is town manager for Julesburg, population 1,200. Just like back in the 1800s homestead days, land is so cheap you can buy it from the government. Driving around a downtown with no stoplights, Coyne touts another one of his jobs, repairing utility poles after a storm. In three and a half hours, I was able to get them back up, get them situated a little bit, turn the power back on. Welcome to rural Colorado. It's a place where the town manager is your local real estate agent. He does utility maintenance. He can even operate the wastewater treatment plant in a pinch. County population has decreased 30 percent over the last 50 years. Sedgwick County Commissioner Don Schneider says county coffers are thin. This November, commissioners will ask voters to approve a 2 percent sales tax increase. We are not BSing you of how this is. If our tax increase doesn't pass, we're probably going to have to look at a four-day week, um, cutting some services, maybe another employee. I don't know where. We're so thin. County commissioner is second job for Snyder. He farms just under 2,000 acres. Low farming revenues have gut-punched the economy here. Schneider says they're also cleaning up after bad decisions in the past. A few years ago, the county board temporarily decreased property taxes and forgot to restore them. That meant the county was out about $300,000 a year. Then there's the air conditioning. Isn't that lovely? That's another past commissioner thing. They put in this expensive dang thermal unit. They didn't save any money because what they traded off in natural gas costs, now they're paying in electric costs. For Schneider, the choice on Election Day is stark. Continue on the current path, which is producing deficits, or raise county sales taxes. But that has local business owners crying foul. 
Kurt Hodel manages a thriving retail marijuana shop off I-76. It's the first one coming in from Nebraska. All I see happening is more customers walking out our door after taking the time to come off the highway, get out of their car, sit and wait in our lobby, and get to our counter and purchase nothing. His business has already taken a hit because pot prices are dropping. Now he worries that higher taxes will force his customers to neighboring counties. That's why he's threatened to close his growing operation in Sedgwick if voters approve the tax. We're effectively producing our own marijuana at a higher rate than I can wholesale purchase it. Colorado counties that face a budget crisis really only have two options. They can raise property taxes, unpopular with farmers in rural Colorado, or they can hike sales tax. It's a tough sell in this deep red county, and voters here are split. Anytime you try to raise taxes, it's, 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 a, it's a fight. Chad Hushauer is the mayor of Julesburg. He says the city has lost people and jobs. A local truck stop shut down, and Cabela's right over the border in Nebraska cut back on some high-paying jobs. But a future without a tax hike looks even worse. You know, right now, we, the, the county's, uh, you know, worried about the hospital. You know, uh, is that something now where, oh, we have to cut some people? We can't service as many people. Campaign materials for the county say life without a tax increase could mean no birth or death certificates, less road and bridge maintenance, fewer patrolling sheriff's deputies. Voters will decide what their future looks like here this November. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. The total solar eclipse last summer was one of the most watched events in American history, seen by more than 216 million people. And while many of us were ooing and aahing, scientists were busy working, learning everything they could during the rare event. So what did they learn? Let's ask astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder, who joins us regularly to discuss space science. Hi again, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Always good to be here. Uh, You traveled to Wyoming for the eclipse last year, like thousands of other Coloradans, to get a really good view from there. Why is a total eclipse a good time for science? The sun is incredibly bright. It's important to us, of course. It's got all kinds of details that you can't see except during a total eclipse. That People might be surprised. The daytime sun is more than a billion times brighter than stars at night. And oh. so the interesting parts of the sun, such as the corona uh, stretching out into space and, and the emissions from the sun that hit the earth, you get a better view, a different view during an eclipse than you ever would otherwise. It's kind of like you can't see the stars in the daytime just because of the brightness of the sun. And you can't see the parts of the sun itself you want to study except in an eclipse. The eclipse indeed provided a great opportunity for some scientists who are trying to predict what the corona would look like that day. Uh, And that's more than an academic exercise because it could have a real bearing on our lives, our technology. First, remind us what the corona is. Sure. When you look at the sun, if you used one of those dark eclipse glasses, you see the visible surface, which is called the photosphere. During the total eclipse, there's beautiful pink beads all around the edge of the moon, and that's the sun's chromosphere, which is the next level up. And then stretching across the sky, anyone who saw the total eclipse, and anyone else missed this, sadly, beautiful, ethereal, very structured streamers of the sun's corona going way out into the sky. That's the corona. That's the corona. And what is so interesting about the corona 
There's a lot of surprises. You know, the hottest part of the sun, sensibly, is the middle, where the nuclear reactions take place. It's millions and millions of degrees. And then when you go out from the core of the sun toward the photosphere, the visible surface, the further away you get from the energy generation, the cooler it gets. And the visible surface of our sun is maybe 6,000 degrees. Uh, a mere 6,000 degrees. A mere 6,000. <laughs> uh, but as you go further, further out, way into the corona, the temperature goes back up to millions of degrees. Oh. It's a puzzle. And all my life, pretty much, solar astronomers have been trying to understand what is the mechanism that transports enough energy from lower down in the sun out to the corona to make it so hot. And what a strange thing that it would then pass through an area of cool and get hot again. Right. And, of course, the corona can wreak havoc on Earth. Well, the outer parts of the, the parts of the sun are always leaving the sun. Of course, light leaves the sun and heats the Earth. But particles leave the sun also. The sun is mostly hydrogen, which is a proton and an electron. But it's so hot, the electrons break away from the atoms. We say they're ionized. That makes them charged. And this stream of charged particles streams through space called the solar wind. And when it hits the Earth, uh, it has consequences. Consequences for our technology, our satellites? Primarily for our satellites. I mean, we are pretty safe because we're protected by the atmosphere. Uh -huh. But outside the atmosphere, when, when a big burst of ionized gas hits a satellite, it can disrupt electronics. And, of course, we're really dependent on satellites Nowadays, I mean, the military uses satellites to make lots of pictures and Landsat in Colorado makes lots of pictures. And we can't even go to restaurants without a satellite, right? Without using GPS. That's a satellite. To guide our way. That's right. And so if you could predict the corona's behavior or at least get a better sense for it, Maybe you could anticipate these problems. I mean, I guess we're talking about solar weather forecasting. Exactly. Okay. And there's a solar weather center up in Boulder. That's right. And when the sun has a special uh, eruption, solar flares, there's much more of these particle streams shooting through space. And if they happen to shoot toward us, that's when we see the strongest effects. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we have regular discussions about space science uh, which is big here in Colorado with Doug Duncan, astronomer at CU Boulder. And so a team of scientists, including Lisa Upton, who's affiliated with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, wanted to see if they could predict how the corona would look when they were able to see it during the solar eclipse. H how would you possibly predict the corona's future behavior? It sounds so erratic as you describe it. Well, you know... Uh it's hard to predict, but but we know basically what's going on. It's all about magnetism. Okay. Okay, as Dick Tracy once said a long time ago. Uh, that beautiful structure in the corona is all guided by magnetic fields. And you can trace those magnetic fields down to the photosphere. In fact, the photosphere is where you see sunspots. And we can measure strong magnetic fields and try and work out how they are controlling the flow of energy from down uh, deeper in the sun out into the corona. With the idea that it's not purely random, that there might be a pattern or forces at play to detect. There's definitely patterns. Okay. We're just trying to work out what the details of that are. So there's a link at CPR.org that lets you compare the prediction this team made and the actual image of the corona 
taken during the eclipse. Why don't that, we? That's right. I, you know, uh, I just got to put in a good word yeah. for the solar telescopes and solar satellites. Last summer, I was in Hawaii. And by the way, any tourist in Hawaii can visit the telescopes up on the mountains in Hawaii. And up in Haleakala on Maui is the most uh, awesome solar telescope ever been built. It's not quite open yet. Uh, my first job was at a small solar telescope, uh, Big Bear Lake in California. But this new one and the satellites are what the scientists are using, uh, you know, to study the magnetic field. Yeah, I think of a telescope as, as something that can look at anything, but this is a specifically solar telescope. Right. Okay. I want to turn to another scientific study, uh, this one done by an amateur and, I might add, a CU graduate. Yes. Donald Bruins repeated an experiment done almost a century ago, also during a total solar eclipse, uh, that proved Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, relativity. correct. Yes. Uh, take us back first to 1919. What did Einstein announce the year before that was rocking the world? So I'm a great fan of Einstein. It's surprising to people. Einstein was maybe not just super smart. Uh, other people were better at math than Einstein, but he was insightful and curious. And, you know, Newton invented a formula for the, f for the law of gravity, and it worked great for falling apples and the earth orbiting the sun. Newton's formula worked great. Uh -huh. But Einstein came along and said, yeah, but how does it work? How does that happen? You know, the sun is pulling on the earth with gravity. Is there something invisible that comes from the sun to the earth? And somehow— being Einstein, he had this incredible idea. Maybe the way it works is the presence of matter warps space. And therefore, things don't travel in a straight line. They go round and round. And the analogy I always use is miniature golf. You hit the miniature golf ball, it goes in a straight line. Unless the surface is curved. If there's a hill or a valley, that ball is going to distort. Right. And if you had an upside-down cone, let's say. Imagine that shape. The ball could go round and round and round. And some miniature golf courses have that. And Einstein said that was happening to space. And so Einstein predicted that if you sent a beam of light through space, it would curve as it went past the sun. Yes. How do you test that theory? Well, what astronomers quickly realized uh, was that if you looked at a bunch of stars with the sun in front of them, like a constellation of stars, yeah. Uh, the picture, uh, the, the position of each of those stars as the light came past the sun toward the earth, toward your eyes, would be slightly shifted by the bending of light by the sun. Now you wait three or four months till the sun is in another constellation. You take more pictures of those same stars and you see if their positions are slightly shifted. All right. And this is presumably what Einstein did. Well, I, uh, this is what the astronomers did to test Einstein. Uh, theory. Einstein okay. never touched a telescope. He was, he just, was, yeah. not, he was no. not telescopically inclined, you're right. saying. Okay, right. so fast forward to the eclipse last summer. This amateur astronomer sets up his telescope near Casper, Wyoming, and recreates the astronomer's experiment. That's right. And, uh, and does it better. Okay. Does, it, does it better than the great Arthur Eddington and all these expeditions in 1919? Back then. One guy from San Diego achieved significantly higher accuracy. But is that because of technology? 
I don't think that's the primary reason. Um, you know, back in 1919, they were taking pictures with film yeah. on glass, and it was it was more difficult in some ways. Uh, this guy who did the current experiment used a digital camera. But it's the kind that a lot of amateur astronomers own. What was different was he was so careful and precise in his measurements. And how much more precision did he achieve? Well, if you imagine taking a big, beautiful digital picture, okay. put it on a giant monitor in front of you, the amount that Einstein predicted the stars would shift would be about one pixel. One pixel out of your 1,440 wow. pixels on the screen. Subtle. Yes. And this guy from San Diego was able to measure shifts of a fraction of a pixel. Oh, my goodness. And it's not just because the technology was better. No, I think it was because he was very careful. And he did something that the astronomers in 1919 didn't do. He did more rehearsal. Now, to be fair, you know, in 1919, they had to go to South America and Africa, so they couldn't stay there forever. He was in Wyoming, which is logistically a little better, and in San Diego. But he practiced and practiced with only a four-inch aperture telescope. Huh. It sounds like you admire him. Uh, I admire him quite a lot. Okay. And again, his name is Donald Bruins. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people do astronomy as a hobby. And if any of our listeners would like to get into that, come up to Fisk Planetarium in Boulder any Friday, and you're going to meet other people like this who take pictures of the sky and get into this a lot. And it's a lot of fun. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at CU Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science, like the lessons learned from last summer's total solar eclipse. Now, another way scientists study the sun is by listening to it. The sun is not silent. It makes a low, pulsing hum as huge rivers of solar material flow around. NASA made a recording of it this summer, and here it is, the sound of the sun. Most Allied soldiers knew World War II was coming to an end by July 26, 1945. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. But the message didn't reach Roy Christensen until later. He was aboard the USS Raton, a Navy submarine stationed in the Pacific. As part of our series documenting World War II stories, we met the 93-year-old veteran at his apartment in Centennial, Colorado. Roy sat down in his leather chair and took me back to the 1940s. He explained why he and his shipmates were among the last to know the war had ended. We were uh, on patrol in the Philippine Sea off the Philippines, and uh, we were still hunting enemy ships. But when... Uh, the flimsy came into our, our boat. Uh, now, what's first, a flimsy? Well, a flimsy is a, 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 when we surfaced any messages that were to go to the, to the ship, they would come through in, a, in code in about one sentence, and then you had to decode it. And these would only come if you were at the surface of the water. Right, yeah. So we, really didn't, we were on our way into Subic Bay for a refitting. 
imagine was about two or three days. We had an idea something was going on, but we really didn't know anything to celebrate that the, the Japanese had surrendered. My goodness, you didn't get the message until you had come ashore. Uh, and there you were patrolling the seas for days after the war had ended. What, what, what if you had found a ship? I can't answer that. I really don't know. That was, uh, uh, luckily it didn't happen. But uh, in August, uh, we had sunk three ships. Tell me about one of those occasions. What was it like? You had a submarine with torpedoes, correct? Yes. One incident that had happened, we were, we'd received a flimsy to uh, search out a Japanese submarine because it had a German scientist and an assistant on board, and that was the number one priority, find that submarine and sink it. And the USS Lapan was in that same territory, thought that we were the Japanese submarine, and fired two torpedoes at us. And luckily, the torpedoes hit us and glanced off, and one of them went out a couple of hundred yards and then exploded. I believe this was the only occasion of friendly fire of one American sub to another one. That's correct, and that still stands. And luckily, at that time, we had some angels riding with us because uh, those torpedoes didn't explode. But uh, we were all sworn to secrecy at that time. And uh, when we got back into port, we were told that we either hit an old mine or we hit a, a palm tree that was floating around in the, in the Pacific. And <laughs> I always kind of laughed about that. I never heard of a palm tree exploding. <laughs> Essentially to save face for the United States Navy, I suppose. That's exactly correct. There was uh, a lot of covering uh, people's... Uh, uh, Heinies. Uh, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> right. I didn't want to say that, but that's about what it was. Did you ever find that ship with the German scientist aboard? No, we didn't. you got to remember that in World War II, uh, all the kids that volunteered to get into the Navy... About 50% of them were doing it because they were, they were beating the draft. We were all kids, and we were all looking for excitement and thrills, and, and I'll certainly tell you that's where we got them. <laughs> I feel like my only experience with a submarine is through movies. And I think I went on the submarine ride at Disneyland as a kid. I'd like a real account of what it was like to be in a sub. How, how far deep would you be? Well, to begin with, in the submarine service, uh, you had to be a volunteer to even get into it. There was a lot of screening before you were accepted for schooling to be in the submarine service. And everybody said, well, how does it feel when you submerge? Uh, it just feels like an airplane when you click your ears to get your, uh, your jaw straightened out, so to speak. It's the same way when you dive. It's no different uh, under sea than it is on top, except for you better not have claustrophobia in, in a submarine. The boat that I was on was 211 feet long, 
and carried 65 crew. When you submerged in those old diesel electric boats, about 20 to 24 hours was your extreme limit of staying submerged. When you dove into the colder water, it made condensation on the ceiling or the overhead of the submarine, and uh, uh, you kind of had a damp feeling. Your your clothes were damp all the time. Were you ever afraid? Oh, sure. Uh, anybody that said they were in a submarine service and they weren't scared, uh, uh, they're lying to you. Because when a, somebody had you spotted and they started dropping depth charges, the first thing we would do is start counting, and we'd slowly count to 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and if you got past 10, you probably got a good rocking around, but you survived. But if you didn't get to 10, there's, well, we don't have to go into that. We lost 57 submarines during uh, World War II. When you have a war, whether you might call it propaganda or not, but the first thing that is taught to any service people is to kill and hate that enemy. So I don't think any of us had, had a feeling of what we had done causing loss of life. Don't think that ever entered our minds at all. We looked at it that, well, there's one ship that's down and it's a victory for our side of the, of the coin. Now, one time we sunk a Japanese freighter that at the same time had been converted somewhat to a troop carrier. Boy, when that ship was sinking, uh, our captain let us all take a look through the periscope, and we saw hundreds of sailors in the water. And they were so anxious to kill us that the two escorts, they had destroyer escorts, they were dropping depth charges on us, and the concussion of those depth charges going off in the water would just lift these guys in the water up about a foot or two out of the water, not completely out of the water, but it would make them jump up, you know, like the explosion. They were killing their own people. Did you miss the Raton after you left it for the last time? Certainly did. I had came back to the United States uh, aboard three other submarines, and uh, I had some fungus that I developed in my fingernails from them being damp all the time, and uh, I got piggybacked, so to speak, into Oakland to the hospital where I was getting treatment for my fingers in the Raton, arrived in San Diego maybe uh, a month or six weeks after that. And uh, Freddie, our cook, he knew that I lived in Pasadena, California, and he called me and said, uh, would I like to bring my mother and father down and tour the boat? And uh, gosh, I, I kind of laughed back at my mother. In those days, women didn't wear slacks. They all wore dresses. And they helped her aboard and told everybody at the hatch to stand back. A lady was coming aboard, and boy, my mother climbed down that stepladder for about 12, 15 feet. Uh, 
she was going to see where her little boy had spent the war. It was great to see all those guys again. And uh, when uh, we got ready to leave the boat, Freddie had a little package wrapped up for my mother in a newspaper, and it was two pounds of butter. And they hadn't had butter for over a year because it was all rationed. And my mother just thought that was a great, great gift. Ninety-three-year-old U.S. Navy veteran Roy Christensen. He served on the USS Raton, a submarine stationed in the Pacific. We spoke at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial, part of our series documenting stories from World War II. A piece of public art had Wheat Ridge resident Becca Binet scratching her head. What's the story behind the red, heaped, jelly-bean-looking structure by the 16th Street pedestrian bridge? Vinay's question came to us through Colorado Wonders, which allows you to share what you're curious about and have us investigate. Today, CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf meets Vinay at the artwork in question. The jelly-bean-looking structure Vinay is asking about is a tall red sculpture with bulbous lumps that can be seen from I-25. It's called National Velvet. I was curious about the name, why that name. I am curious about the shape and color, because the shape could be kind of fun and goofy, but the color kind of lends itself to something a little bit more serious, in in my opinion. I feel like it forces you to look at it. It's been hard to ignore National Velvet since it was installed in 2008. Denver Arts and Venue says it's one of the most talked about pieces in the city's public art collection. So much so that the city threw a block party for it in 2014 called the Big Red Street Fair. Benet and I ask people what they think the sculpture looks like. I think it looks like a pile of sausages. Could be raw ground beef. I think it looks like a bunch of red water balloons. To be totally honest, um, large intestines. And that's nothing compared to what artist John McEnroe calls hours of hate chat on a now-defunct Denver radio show. Dan Kaplis, co-host of KHOW's Kaplis and Silverman show, blasted it for its shape and said it was inappropriate. It's big, it's red. He was making a sexual statement, you know, with your money and right in your face. McEnroe decided not to weigh in on the criticism because, he says, artwork often needs to speak for itself. He was reluctant to participate in this story at first, but agreed to meet with Becca Benet after being reassured her inquiry was genuine curiosity. Becca. Hi, I'm Becca. Becca, nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, too. I've never interviewed before, so this will be a first for me. Right on. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you do great. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, all right, cool. So my first question is, I know you do a lot of sculptural pieces, so how do you feel about this piece? This thing happened in a really organic way. Um, the, the original proposal was for a piece that went underneath this walkway right here. And it was made with a material called retro-reflective tape. But the engineers 
were concerned about keeping an eye on the bridge quality so we couldn't cover the bridge with anything. So we were asked to go back to our drawing board, and well, I was, and in my studio, I do lots of experimentation, lots of playing around with materials that aren't normally used for art. One of my best friends makes prosthetic parts for human bodies, and one of the one of the materials that he uses is a, a nylon. It's sort of like pantyhose, but it's an industrial kind of grade nylon, and they use it to slip over a damaged body part before they make the prosthetic, and I wanted to see what it was that I could do with it. So I started tying it up and pouring things inside of it, and sand seemed to be the most obvious one, and I poured it in there, and you could sort of manipulate these things after they were closed off and make these very unique shapes and they held their shape and became kind of like little elements that I could build with, kind of like bricks. And so when we were asked to go back to the drawing board, I was like, well, you're going to get what's going on in my studio right now, this uh, playful experimentation with nylon and sand. And I brought it back in with a proposal and some actually charcoal drawings of what this thing might look like. And I'm just curious because I haven't had a chance to see them. Do they look, does the drawings look like how, how it turns out here? Almost exactly. This simple stack um, and an obelisk seem to be the best solution. I was as surprised as anyone that they said, yeah, let's make that. McEnroe worked with a team of people. He says it took about nine months to complete National Velvet. They built it in sections, stacking these nylon bags of sand and snugging them in at each layer to make a tapered obelisk. But after I got about four feet up, I took resin in a bucket and mixed it up and then brushed it on every surface that you see here that's all external. So it made this sort of hard candy shell. And after that occurred, I went to the inside of the structure and cut the nylon. And the sand and the nylon all came out. Then I used a torch to burn the excess nylon off. So all that's left was this external candy shell right here. How thick is the resin? How many coats did it take? And like that, because exactly. yeah, I, I wonder how heavy it is too. <laughs> it's not heavy. The, my my assistant and I could carry one section at a time with no trouble. You know, I always worry about somebody getting a call from arts and venues saying, hey, John, National Velvet just blew over in the storm last night. That's what keeps me awake at night. But really, it's got this um, beehive structure on the inside that is so strong. It is so amazing that this kind of beehive structure keeps it together. You want to crack it open? Yeah. McEnroe right. hands Binet a specialized Allen wrench. They unscrew the covering to the metal pedestal National Velvet sits on. Come on in. It's like an elevator. The three of us step inside. We look up. It does look like a honeycomb or, or something out of Ferngully. Ferngully? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. you know, the 1992 animated film that featured Robin Williams as a wacky bat. To me, it looks sort of like a cluster of red blood cells with the way the sunlight shines through. National Velvet lights up from the inside at night. Though McEnroe says nearby construction has caused snarls with the lighting. At one point... An unlit national velvet prompted a petition on change.org to, quote, reilluminate the giant pile of kidneys in Lohi. Back on the outside, Binet has another question. So I was wondering, what made you pick the color that you decided on? Maybe we'll go back to the naming of it, of national velvet, right? <laughs> yeah. um, let's, let's go right to the heart of it. Um, I have a 
TV in my studio, and I watch Turner Classic movies all the time, and it's the, the old Hollywood movies, and National Velvet, the Mickey Rooney movie, um, really caught my attention. MGM's Children's Matinee presents National Velvet, about a race called the Grand National, and a girl named Velvet. I thought, wow, what a grand set of words and that I wanted to leverage some of that excitement that's in that title. I gotta say, after hearing about all of the work and the process behind it, I do feel like my appreciation of it has shifted, which is part of the reason I asked the question, because, you know, most things shift after you learn a little bit about it, right? So <laughs> so I, I really appreciate you describing that. Thank you. I appreciate you asking. Benet and McEnroe take a selfie in front of National Velvet before saying their goodbyes. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Okay, Stephanie, it's so cool. You had to go inside. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I have to admit that was my favorite part. Stephanie Wolf is in our studio because in addition to Colorado Wonders, she's involved in another exciting project here at CPR News that you can participate in. CPR News has a book club. Stephanie, a virtual one, and you're the moderator. That's right. And we're actually a week ahead of the club's next meeting. So there's still time to read this month's selection, which is Where You Once Belonged. Um, That's by the late Colorado author Kent Hariff. Kent Hariff. And what is Where You Once Belonged about? So it's set in the fictional small town of Holt, Colorado. It's a first-person narrative, so told through the eyes of the town's newspaper editor. And it focuses on the former high school football star. This is Jack Burdett. He's really selfish. He's pretty dishonest also. And he leaves people's lives in ruins. In ruins. I've been reading this, too, because I'm going to join you for this Facebook Live discussion. I interviewed Kent Hariff a number of times before he died in 2014. And you mentioned that it's set in this fictional town of Holt, Colorado. I asked him about that setting for his books. I feel as if I've invented that place. I know all the streets and most of the people in the county and... uh, the gravel roads, the um, the main street going north and south, the highway going east and west, the elevators at, along the railroad, stores and the false storefronts on Main Street, the names of the streets as such as they are, all those things I have in my mind so I don't have to spend time thinking about them or reinventing them. Have you ever tried drawing Holt or laying out the streets or something? No, I, I know that pretty clearly, but I have drawn pictures of individual houses so that I knew how they... Uh, were laid out and where the sun would strike the rooms uh, from the south and so on. Holt is actually a lot like the town's Hariff lived in, Ray, Holyoke, Yuma, Colorado. In any case, Steph, uh, how does this virtual book club work? It's actually pretty simple, Ryan. We started a Facebook group this summer. So this is a platform to chat about Colorado and Western books. About every other month, we post a poll for members to vote on what book they want to read. You have about a month to read the selection, and then we host a Facebook Live discussion. For our first book, the group read The Newcomers by Denver author Helen Thorpe. Helen actually joined me and a former colleague for our very first discussion in August, and members were able to ask Helen questions directly. So how can people participate in next week's virtual event? Maybe they read quickly or they listen to the audiobook. Yeah, if you're a quick reader, uh, you still have a week, as I mentioned earlier, to get this in. So search for the Facebook group CPR News Book Club. You have to join the book club Facebook group first. And then go to the group's page on Tuesday, October 2nd at 6 p.m. Click on the Facebook live stream. 
And there you can submit your questions by posting in the stream's comment sections. We'll be monitoring those throughout the discussion. Okay, so the live discussion, Tuesday, October 2nd at 6 p.m. Can't wait to join you. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks so much. She is our arts reporter, Stephanie Wolf, and moderates the CPR News Book Club. The book we're reading is Kent Harris, Where You Once Belonged. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.